I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas. Today we continue our series, The Myth of the Secular, with a program about how Christianity made Western society what it is today. The image of God cracked at the crucifixion. Before that, there was a profound apprehension that God had no image, that he was beyond imagining. And suddenly you have the idea that he is known and can be known in an image that is broken. So that is such a tension between the Jewish idea of the God whose name cannot even be spoken and the idea that his name can be spoken and it's an ordinary name, one of our names, an ordinary human name. Now to have a God who is suffering, a God who is vulnerable, a God who can die, is so revolutionary that it's going to take a long time for that idea to seep through into human consciousness. It was once common to define secularization as the overcoming of religion. Karl Marx's famous description of religion as the opiate of the people is typical of countless modern theories that saw religion as false consciousness, an ideological facade that hid humanity's real situation. Philosopher Charles Taylor calls these theories subtraction stories. Religion is a kind of froth. The secular is the underlying reality that is revealed when this froth is blown away. This was the dominant view when British sociologist David Martin began his academic career more than half a century ago. Fifty years later, it no longer is, and Martin can certainly claim some of the credit. He's been one of the pioneers of a new style of secularization theory, which has argued that Christianity shaped the very foundations of Western society, that it's the seedbed from which our social imagination has grown, shaping secular sensibilities just as surely as religious ones. Martin is now in his 80s and retired as professor of sociology at the London School of Economics and various other universities. Today on Ideas, he talks with David Cayley as we continue our series, The Myth of the Secular. David Martin described himself to me as an accidental sociologist, a term he borrowed from his colleague Peter Berger's memoir, Adventures of an Accidental Sociologist. We were talking in the study of his home in Woking, a small city in Surrey, not far from London, and I had asked how he got into sociology. It was accidental, he said, in the sense that he was pursuing a vital personal interest, not aiming at a career in sociology. He had grown up in an evangelical Christian family, and then, as a young man, found his faith tested. The cause of the crisis was his reading, at the age of 21, Albert Schweitzer's The Quest of the Historical Jesus, a book, as its title suggests, that puts Jesus in historical perspective. Schweitzer was a celebrated German theologian, musician, and missionary doctor. His book was young David Martin's first encounter with critical scholarship on the New Testament. I opened Schweitzer's The Quest of the Historical Jesus 
And I'd never encountered a sustained argument before, a really sustained argument. And in about two days, I was traumatized by a way of understanding the New Testament that had never occurred to me before, because you don't read the New Testament with your eyes open. You somehow just hear it in scraps and fragments in church. So that caused a huge problem. And so I simply then tried to work that out by reading a huge amount of New Testament criticism and also standard theology. But there was one other element here, and that is that what I had got from the New Testament quite clearly was an ideal of peace and forgiveness and loving your enemies and doing good to them that despitefully use you. And I took that very seriously, so seriously that when I was called up for national service in 1948, I became a conscientious objector and found myself in the army, but as a non-combatant. As a conscientious objector, David Martin became interested in the question of how Christianity, with its gospel of peace, had become entangled in the waging of war in the first place. This question was what drew him in to the sociology of religion, along with the critical interest in the New Testament that grew out of his encounter with the quest of the historical Jesus. The result was his first book, Pacifism, an Historical and Sociological Study. There, for the first time, he butted up against the paradoxes of Christianity as an established religion. I had to work my way through the whole history of Christianity <laughs> in order to see how the peace theme worked out, and particularly what happened when a gospel of peace became adopted by a warrior empire. That's to say, when it was adopted by the Roman Empire and which became then the cement of the Roman Imperium. And then how it further, much later, became the cement of nation-states after the Reformation. And in all those, in those cases, when it became part of the imperial system, when it became part of the nation-state system, it was involved in something that's inherently a power game. And as I would say, Christianity conquered the world and the world commandeered Christianity. So that was the dialectic I was dealing with all the time. The dialectic between Christianity and the world that was trying to assimilate it became the constant theme of David Martin's reflection. And he soon realized that Christianity had changed the world just as much as the world had changed Christianity. This led him, in time, to formulate a theory in which secularization was understood as an effect of Christianity rather than a departure from it. The first step on this road, he came to think, was taken during the Enlightenment, when people for the first time, began to think practically about how to achieve the goals that Christianity had to that point only proclaimed, about how to turn theology into sociology and make the image of the kingdom of God into an actual place. People began to reason about peace as distinct from proclaiming peace, making an announcement of peace. Now, that came perhaps with the Enlightenment and with Kant. So Kant proclaimed perpetual peace 
and began to see religion actually as the source, one of the major sources of war. So there's some kind of a shift occurs between the 17th century and the 18th century when what were previously images of change became ideas about change in which the image of a kingdom of peace became a set of arguments about how peace could be established. Now that was a major secularization. This process of secularization took another step forward with what is sometimes called the Marxist Enlightenment. It turned, roughly speaking, on Karl Marx's theory that history can be divided into stages which unfold progressively and will culminate in communism. To David Martin, it appeared to be the Christian scheme of salvation transposed into secular and historical terms. What was happening here was that what had in Christianity had been the times that were and the times that now are, that's to say the times when people were ignorant, as Paul put it, and now we've moved into the new era, the New Testament. <laughs> that particular staging of history was then replayed out again within the Marxist form of the Enlightenment. So you've now got two ways in which Christianity had been taken over and secularized. It had been secularized first by the movement to the light of reason and then secularized into a new version of ages and stages. So the ages that had been built into the Christian system were then taken over and reformulated as part of a scheme of secular history. And this meant that God would be emptied out, if you like, taken out of the heavens and earthed but when you say God is taken out of the heavens and earth, that sounds a very curious, very curiously like thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So what I concluded was that when I had got a set of mutations of Christian themes that had actually reused the Christian repertoire in the course of attacking it. This last point that the Enlightenment deployed the Christian repertoire against Christianity became an important part of David Martin's thinking. It also helps to explain the reaction he met when he entered the London School of Economics as a graduate student in the early 1960s. His background to that point had been unusual. He had acquired his university degree by correspondence while working as a primary school teacher in London so he had no experience in university settings and was consequently surprised at how greatly his assumptions about Christianity differed from those of his new colleagues. When I arrived at the Edessee as someone who'd never been through an undergraduate course, I'd, of course, not been socialized properly <laughs> in the system. If I'd done three years with them, I would have been properly processed, but I was unprocessed. I'd processed myself <laughs> and so I was up for disagreement and I was really very interested in religion but my colleague said to me why are you wasting your time and in fact my wife Bernice Martin her supervisor because she was in the university at the same time we got married a bit later her supervisor said you want to study religion in Britain that's a waste of time why don't you study the factory acts because religion is something that is passing away 
why study something that's disappearing? In other words, my colleagues automatically assumed the Enlightenment view plus often the Marxist view. So what I've been describing to you as what had emerged in the course of my study of pacifism, the shift to the Enlightenment, the shift to the Marxist version of the progress of history from one stage to another, which was, as I saw it, a reformulation of Christianity used against Christianity itself, was simply accepted as straightforward factuality, empirical reality by my colleagues. I remember a colleague saying to me, uh, David, do you think you've got a subject? Is there a real subject? Now, what lay behind that? It was the idea that religion is really a kind of efflorescence of real forces. The real things that are going on are material forces. What you're concerned with is the spume that's thrown up by the great waves. We work with the real forces that are driving the tempest. You're just interested in the iridescent spume that's thrown up. So I was annoyed. <laughs> I said, first of all, I do not believe that we have moved out of one stage into another, the stage when religion was the womb of everything, to the stage where it's nothing, just iridescent spume thrown out by the real forces of history. I think that religion still matters. And I also think that you are in the grip of an ideology about the end of religion. You think you're scientists. I mean, of course, I didn't say this in this brutal way. I'm, I'm summarising <laughs> my feeling about it. You think you're empiricists. You are actually ideologians. Ideologians, or ideologues, his colleagues at the London School of Economics may have been, but David Martin still prospered in their midst, and in 1971 was appointed professor, a post he held until his retirement. His thoughts on secularization came to fruition with a book called A General Theory of Secularization that was published in 1979. One of his innovations in that book was to argue that secularization is an extremely varied phenomenon that Western countries had followed different paths and arrived at quite different destinations. The differences between England and France, he says, are one instance of this variety. There are only 22 miles between England and France, but a vast historical gulf, a huge cultural gulf, and it is connected with the fact that England has a weak established church and any number of free churches, voluntary associations, whereas the French had just one big church. And that has produced a revolutionary movement that is very anti-religion because it feels that, that religion stands as a great block in the way of progress. So they've got a way of thinking about things which is that on the one side is progress, on the other side is the Catholic Church, which is reactionary. It stands for the Ancien Regime. So this is a society divided down the middle, whereas in Britain we have got a whole wide range of possibilities and progress has moved. It's sometimes been associated with the free churches, sometimes been associated with no churches, sometimes associated with the Church of England, so that we don't have this particular kind of division. 
Patterns of secularization, in David Martin's theory, turned in large part on whether there was an established church, that is, a church integrated with the state, and on how strong it was. In Britain and the United States, there was considerable religious freedom. In England, the established church was weak. In the U.S., there was none. Religious dissent flourished, and Christianity tended to be politically progressive. Why this has recently changed in the U.S. is a subject I'll have to leave for a later program in this series. In France, where religious variety was suppressed in favor of a monolithic Catholic church, religion and progress polarized, and the French state continues to see religious expression as a threat to its laïcité, its militantly secular ethos. This French pattern, Martin says, was exported with some changes to the rest of Latin Europe, to Latin America, and latterly Turkey. Scandinavia showed yet another pattern. Scandinavia's got established churches, but it doesn't have so many free churches. So what has happened in Scandinavia? Well, the free churches have actually emerged inside the state system. So you don't have to have a break with the state system. So what's happened there is that the whole system has moved from a dominant Lutheranism to a dominant social democracy without any great break. So you've got an established church and an established social democracy. And all those Scandinavian countries are almost identical from Iceland to Finland. I mean, there are variations. But it's astonishing that all those have exactly the same secularization pattern. There are other patterns as well. One striking one is found in Eastern Europe, where a monolithic and oppressive brand of communism was imposed by force, and the church, as a result, became associated with liberation, the precise opposite of the French pattern. But the larger point of David Martin's theory is that secularization occurs along lines that are predicted by a given state's accommodation or lack of accommodation with religion. It's rather like the old joke about the two atheists who are arguing fruitlessly until one finally says to the other, look, we're never going to get anywhere. I'm a Protestant atheist and you're a Catholic atheist and we have nothing in common. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 159. Today, we're continuing our series, The Myth of the Secular. It's presented by David Cayley. David Martin has had a distinguished career as a sociologist. And a sociologist, as he remarks in one of his books, has no remit to talk about God or to try to distinguish the true word from any other statement. But Martin is not just a sociologist. He's also an ordained priest of the Church of England who assists and sometimes preaches at Guildford Cathedral. And more than that, he has the sensibility of a poet, something that came across to me in reading his book The Breaking of the Image, published in 1980. 
The book is a meditation on Christian images and themes and the way in which they have shaped Western civilization's social imaginary. That's a term Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor has used to try to get at the never quite fully conscious, never quite controlled sense of the possible by which a society steers and establishes its horizons. One of the most arresting passages in The Breaking of the Image connects the crucifixion of Jesus to the splitting of the atom. And I asked David Martin to begin our discussion of Christian imagery there. It had to do with pent-up power, enormous pent-up power in something infinitely small. So the infinitely small could in the long run be world-creating and world-destroying I'm using world here to mean the worlds that people live in. The assumptions of the world could be completely overturned, turned upside down by this event, just as the assumptions of the world we lived in were were overturned in 1945 by the explosion of the atomic bomb. So it has that kind of world-changing power. And it was... I think quite closely related to the image of the seed that was very, very tiny and in the end became the great tree that provided the shadow within which we all lived when it had grown to its full height. The image of God cracked at the crucifixion. Before that, there was a profound apprehension that God had no image, that he was beyond imagining and that to speak of his image was to blaspheme against his being because it was so infinite. Whereas in the case of the crucifixion, you had something that complemented that in a very extraordinary way. First of all, God cannot be seen, that he's beyond all imagining. And suddenly you have the idea that he is known and can be known in an image that is broken And the broken image is the image of Christ, that here is a broken body. So, whereas God was bodiless, he had no image, now he had a body and it was a broken body. Now, that is such a dialectic tension, such a tension between the Jewish idea of the God whose name cannot even be spoken and the idea that his name can be spoken and it's an ordinary name, one of one of our names, an ordinary human name, and also a name that has a broken body. Now, to have a God who is suffering, a God who is vulnerable, a God who can die, is so revolutionary that it's going to take a long time for that idea to seep through into human consciousness. Seeping is one of the many metaphors David Martin deploys in The Breaking of the Image to evoke the ways in which the imagery of the Bible enters the social imagination. These images taken together form what he calls a repertoire. Think, for example, of the tree imagery, from the tree of life in the Garden of Eden to the tree on which Christ is crucified to the tree of life restored for the healing of the nations at the end of the book of Revelation, or of the themes of paradise lost and regained, of exile and return, 
or of Ezekiel's vision of the New Jerusalem. They are all part of the repertoire that Western society absorbs through what David Martin calls liturgy, the formulas that are drummed into consciousness in and out of church. The repertoire is maintained by liturgy, the repetition over centuries of the scriptures and the realization of that repertoire in hymnody, that's to say sung, the repetition of the repertoire in the great works of um, the great musical masterpieces, take Messiah, for example, comforting my people, speak ye comfortably Jerusalem, every valley shall be exalted. All those great images are sung whether you go to church or not. In other words, the seeds of the kingdom are not actually contained straightforwardly in the church at all. They are dropped. The phrase I use is dropped extramurally. They're dropped outside the walls. They fall outside the walls and they're picked up at random. It's rather like the parable of the sower. It's just thrown abroad and you never know what's going to happen to it. And often it actually operates against the institution which carries it. The carrier is the church, but what has actually happened that the seeds have been thrown broadcast. They've actually been broadcast in society. The seed images of Christianity shape Western society because they are so widely dispersed and because repetition keeps drumming them into the popular mind. They become part of Christian society's mental furniture. But this imprinting, as Martin calls it, is no simple process, because the Gospels contain many teachings that are utterly incompatible with the flourishing and even the continuation of human society. One example that David Martin gives is the advice of Jesus to his disciples to take no thought for the morrow, but rather to trust entirely in the momentary promptings of the Spirit. In another place, he questions the institution of the family, asking, Who is my father and my mother? And answering that it is whoever does God's will, that it's the community of faith that matters, not the natural family. So that same gospel, that is, on the one hand, being imprinted by constant repetition, is, on the other, quite impossible to assimilate. Christianity proclaims the coming kingdom, thy kingdom come on earth, and it does so in highly hyperbolic ways, which if you actually tried to institute them, human institutions would collapse. Uh, for example, it says, who is my father? Who is my mother? The family goes. Take no thought for the morrow. Provision for the future goes. The whole insurance industry collapses. <laughs> or call no man father. Take that. How explosive that is. Now, all those elements are unexploded bombs. They fall into the ground. Now, you remember I was talking about seeds that were thrown over the wall before. Now I'm going to put unexploded bombs <laughs> that are just lying there. And they are detonated as particular circumstances arise in which they become relevant. Let me just give one example. The English Civil War. The question of everybody is made in the image of God implies radical equality. In what sense are we really equal? This very idea of human equality, 
that we are made in the image of God, or if you want to translate it in Enlightenment terms, where all men are created equal. There is no way of establishing that. It is actually an unexploded bomb that's been dropped, that's been left in society, and which, under certain circumstances, becomes highly relevant. When the king is oppressing his subjects, and those who revolt against him say, the smallest he, I'm quoting from the Putney debates of 1640, the smallest he in England is as great as the greatest he. Suddenly that bomb has gone off. It's suddenly exploded. The postulate of human equality cannot be demonstrated, David Martin argues. It may be part of the common sense of democratic society, but it has no foundation outside of revealed religion. The assertion that the greatest he is no better than the smallest he comes to hand during the English Civil War because it's part of the ingrained repertoire. But this doesn't happen all at once. Two millennia elapse between the assertion in the book of Genesis that we all bear the image of God and its deployment as an argument for equality during the English Civil War. For long periods, the explosive energy contained in biblical images may be held back or dammed up in another of Martin's characteristic figures. And at first, Martin says, the gospel is barely understood at all. Initially, it does sink in at all. For example, Christ is crucified. There is the vulnerable man. But once that's initially received in Anglo-Saxon England, the hero climbs the tree. He is the great hero. So this is assimilated to the idea of the heroic man. It's received in the terms of the receiving society. So it starts to undermine that. But it's taking ages and ages. So the imprinting has to go on and on and on with elements on it very gradually building up and building up. And then at a particular point, it slips out. And it does so in various ways. One way is the sectarian way. The sectarian way you can illustrate from the Quakers. The Quakers are a capsule of revolution that is left by the English Civil War. Inside that, there are all kinds of radical ideas, for example, about the equality of women. So that as the capsule begins to collapse, what I mean is the boundaries of that society that maintain its integrity, that keep it going, particularly marrying inside. For example, that's one mechanism for keeping the Quakers together. As those things begin to collapse, the membrane between the revolutionary sectarian capsule and the society begins to get thinner and thinner, and it begins to drill out into the social mainstream through people like Elizabeth Fry for example, and, and the, the movement for the reform of prisons, for the movement, the initial Quaker protest against slavery. So you could start to see them slipping out as the membrane breaks, that's one. The other is, it's not just coming out through the sectarian tradition. These images that have been imprinted habitually through liturgical repetition have gradually begun to undermine the old images, particularly the heroic images. Christianity doesn't have a heroic ethic. Most societies up to, up to then are based on a heroic ethic. Christianity is radically different from that. 
But that model of the hero goes on and on and on replicating itself. It's got its own repertoire. But this Christian undermining is constantly going on as well. So you've got what I might call honour and courtesy, the hero with honour and courtesy on the other hand, and this other notion of forgiveness and humility and vulnerability and readiness to sacrifice self. That image also is going along at the same time. And at certain points, it actually breaks through. And my sense of modernity is that some of the the most fundamental Christian images about the margin, about the vulnerable, <laughs> have broken through in a massive way under what modernity has made possible. The innocence of the, ch the child, for example, the centrality of the child, its realisation is quite recent. These fundamental images have been placed there and they are fructifying. They're fructifying in society all the time sometimes undermining their own carriers. And modernity is very much the use of Christian themes against the Christian institution that's been necessary to their replication. Modernity, in David Martin's view, is overwhelmingly Christian, however secular its surfaces may appear. It represents what he calls a massive breakthrough of Christian themes. One of the images that he uses is of the slipway from which a ship is launched. First, it must be patiently built. Then the ship slowly begins to move. And finally, as it slips down the way, it achieves an irresistible momentum. Christianity, as David Martin understands it, is one of the consummations or completions of the revolution in consciousness that took place during what German philosopher Karl Jaspers called the Axial Age. This was the period between 800 and 200 BCE, when the Hebrew prophets lived, when the Bible was written, when the Buddha taught in India, and Confucius and Lao Tzu in China. It was a time when a story began to be told of alienation, a garden from which we had been banished, a way, the Tao, which we had lost, and of restoration. Isaiah, for example, prophesies that the lion will lie down with the lamb, that a child will lead them, that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Modernity inherits the hopes of this period via Christianity, but also the renewed realism that you get in political philosophers like Machiavelli and Thomas Hobbes. And this tension between realism and apocalyptic hope forms another of the dialectical poles in David Martin's thinking. That vision of, of a restored world in which the, the lion lay down with the lamb actually runs against realities. If you think about the Darwinian world, the Darwinian world doesn't have lambs lying down with lions, uh, not for long anyway. <laughs> That's one version of reality which is counter to the vision. But the other version is the Machiavellian one, where power is a matter of manipulation and making sure that you stay in power by whatever means are necessary. Uh, so 
Machiavelli unveils the real politic of society, that power operates to secure itself and it expands because if it didn't expand, it would contract. Aggression is its means of defence and it's in a state of perpetual struggle. So you've got two ways in which lions don't lie down with lambs. One is the natural world, the Darwinian one, which isn't, which we must all have known about all the time. It's just obvious. So why it comes as a shock, I don't know. It's just amazing to think that that it wasn't absolutely clear that lions didn't lie down with lambs uh, and that this was survival of the fittest. And it's also absolutely clear that Machiavelli, well, not writing everything, but he was basically writing saying that lions didn't lie down with lambs when it came to politics. Christianity and all the great religions that trace their roots to the Axial Age exist in a profound tension with the natural world. They assert what is manifestly not true, either of nature or of human beings as natural creatures who make society. Christianity, viewed in this light, is a threat to the reproduction of society. One of the functions of the church is to contain this threat, to somehow mediate between the social world and the explosive potential, the seeds, as Martin says, that the church carries. The church is the lightning conductor of Christianity because if these secret messages are so powerful, they could actually break the world open. So it's carried, it's, it is gently landed <laughs> by, by the spire of the church. And if you think about what's in the gospel, it is, take no thought for the morrow, if you take these superb hyperbolic statements, they do need to be gently adjusted <laughs> to the world into which they come. So there are two elements. One is the length of time it's going to take before the seeds fructify, and the other is that they need to be um, handled gently, <laughs> and the church does accommodate them. So on the one hand, it's, there are profound distortions because it's built into power systems, the power systems of feudalism or of capitalism or, or absolute monarchy or whatever. It's built into all those kind of systems, but it is the essential carrier by which these things are replicated for the future. Again, paradox. Without the church, the gospel would not be preserved, repeated, and passed on. But the accommodation the church must reach with society results in a distortion of the gospel. And Christianity, as the most revolutionary of religions, is the least easily socialized. Muhammad was a father and a leader of armed men, even if merciful in victory. Jesus was a celibate pacifist born of a virgin who predicted the end of the world. The contrast is striking. To become the everyday religion of everyday people going about the business of conserving and reproducing their clans and communities, it had to change profoundly. David Martin illustrates the somewhat a social character of Christianity's original inspiration by contrasting the Christian rite of baptism with the Jewish rite of circumcision. Baptism is a crossing. Moses crossing the Red Sea, Jesus passing through the Jordan, crossing from darkness to light, 
from the old man to the new man, all these images of change. There are all ways in which people are totally changed. And by passing through water, they receive new life. It's new life. Whereas circumcision is the mark of belonging, belonging within a particular human genealogy that goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, that's passed from father to son. These are genealogies of people in a place. Now, there are few things more profound than belonging to a particular group. Who am I is a name and a place. I am called this way and I live here and these are my people. That's what circumcision does and it's enormously powerful. Circumcision is a ritual of belonging. Baptism of displacement from the natural community into a new community of the spirit. This is why various Christian sects have insisted that baptism must be the purposeful undertaking of a believer and not a right the community imposes on an unformed child. But for most Christians, baptism became, as the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once wrote, Christian circumcision. Such is the power of social identity, David Martin says. That identity will constantly revisit. It will constantly come back. And it does so in the way that Christian baptism comes to be understood. If you went to the north of England now and asked people, why are you being baptised? It would be a kind of magicking, a kind of magic protection. You are protecting the child by this act but you're also inscribing him in the natural community, the community of some part of the north of England. And all kinds of things follow from that. One of them is the maintenance of boundaries. Social nature will not be impugned without making a comeback. It's going to make a comeback. Social nature is David Martin's term for society as a natural phenomenon. Christianity must accommodate to it. And yet, the seeds continue to flower, the bombs to explode. David Martin's sociology of Christianity is dialectical. It emphasizes the dynamic tension that Christianity has created in the societies in which it has been adopted, at one moment fortifying establishments, at the next undermining them. And for him, this is a continuing story. In Europe and parts of North America, Christianity has declined as a church-based practice, but worldwide there has been a dramatic expansion. The umbrella term for this new flowering of Christianity is Pentecostalism, and David Martin has studied it extensively. It draws on the New Testament story of Pentecost. After the death of Jesus, his followers have assembled in Jerusalem. The Spirit comes upon them, and they begin to speak in foreign tongues. The bystanders who listen to them are amazed because each one hears in his own language. It's a parable of universal understanding, but also of the Spirit's transforming power. The idea that 
is that the spirit can be present in anybody and we can all speak to each other across the barriers of communication. So that's one of the bases of Pentecostalism, that we are not held within our particular local hierarchy. We're not stuck within how we are defined in this particular place by the owner of estates, by the fact that we belong to a particular despised tribe. We are part of the human and we share in the human spirit and we can speak in the spirit and all of us have the gift of the spirit. Now that idea that anybody has the gift of the spirit and can speak before kings, that idea has become realized in unusual ways in the present age, that we all have the right to speak before kings. The scale of the worldwide expansion of Pentecostal Christianity is hard to estimate. It depends on what is included. David Martin has heard estimates as high as 500 million adherents, but discounting for what he calls the evangelical tendency to exaggerate, he thinks it may be only half that. Even so, it's a huge movement, and one, he says, that at first surprised him. I initially, being a sociologist, thought they wouldn't come to anything. My sociological colleagues believed in the revolution, but they certainly didn't believe in the cultural revolution of Pentecostalism. And I was sufficiently a sociologist to think that it would be a kind of backstreets affair, by which I mean tiny little chapels where sad people found consolation in the ecstasy of the poor. That's about as much as I gave it. And that I was taught that by sociology, that that kind of movement would not take off. And by sociology, I was also taught that the secularization pattern of Europe would be replicated around the world, and that would include Islam. So a combination of resurgent Islam and of enlivened, to put it mildly, Christianity has broken the sociological model of how things ought to be. And I wrote a little book called Forbidden Revolutions because I was rightly conscious of the fact that the revolutions that sociology expected had simply collapsed, especially in 1989, and the revolutions we hadn't expected had happened. So there, the forbidden revolutions had occurred, and Pentecostalism is one of them. David Martin traces the roots of Pentecostalism all the way back to the so-called Pietist movement, which emerged in Germany in the 17th and 18th centuries. One of its concerns was with the translation and dissemination of the gospel. And one of the centers from which this work proceeded was the Franke Foundation in the German city of Halle. Martin believes that Pentecostalism is a continuation of this evangelical interest in translation. Pentecostalism is worldwide translation. The very idea of translating the gospel into all tongues is the same idea as the idea of speaking in tongues. This is another seed. This is a germ. <laughs> this is a something that's replicated the idea of translation into any tongue, whatever, and crossing or boundaries. You can see the texts themselves, the translated texts, in the Franke Foundation in Halle in Germany. That spread to Britain by way of Methodism and the Society for the uh, Propagation of the Gospel. 
And John Wesley said, the world is my parish. And moreover, he went outside the church. He walked outside the church and just preached. So he was the speaking man. Now, Pentecostals are speaking men and women. Speaking men and women. Ready to go out into the street and breaking out of the older institutions, the old institutional walls, the walls of the established churches, so that people who have not been heard from before, whose voice has not been heard, raise their voice in the babble, <laughs> the babble of Pentecostalism, the, the common spirit language. And they believe that it can fall on anybody. It can fall on the marginal as it can on the educated. It doesn't matter if you're part of, a, of an established hierarchy. You can get up and speak. The worldwide growth of Pentecostal Christianity in recent years has, as David Martin remarked earlier, turned a lot of sociological theory upside down. The revolutions that were predicted failed, the ones that weren't succeeded. And this raises the question of whether the idea that modernization equals secularization was ever true. Martin thinks that it wasn't. He thinks that industrialization and technological progress generally threw people into situations in which religion became more important. There was an intensification of religion with industrialization and urbanization that for large sectors of the population, there was a new kind of personal intimacy and a new kind of ability for speaking men and speaking women to emerge and make their voice heard. Now, the kinds of religion that had previously existed could have been held in a rather generalised, we know we belong, we know we are Church of England or, or whatever, <laughs> but this doesn't mean this personal relationship. Now, the beginning of this personal relationship in Germany that spread, that spread to England and then spread via the Great Awakenings to America, this sense of I am personally involved and everything depends on whether I personally and sincerely have committed myself. This sense of commitment was hugely intensified by urbanization and everything we talk about it by modernization. Modernization, in David Martin's view, fosters a new, more personal kind of religious commitment, and modern communication technologies foster its rapid spread. Pentecostalism, in this sense, is a blend of ancient spiritual promise and modern technique. It thrives because it creates hope, allowing people to band together and believe in themselves in difficult circumstances. And this vitality and hopefulness make a striking contrast with the mood that Martin senses in the more prosperous and more secular countries of Europe. He concludes, therefore, with a rueful reflection on the ways in which the hope of perfection that Christianity carries seems to recede as life grows more comfortable. His example is our having lost the sense of spiritual quest that he thinks resounded through European music from Bach's time through the Romantic period. An image of perfection that was intimated in, say, Bach, Handel, Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven, and the early Romantics too, that sense of the possibility of perfection 
has somehow become more difficult at the point at which we are living more satisfactory and less threatened lives than ever before in history. Now that seems to me to tell me something about that ultimately these things that make for our comfort don't in the end successfully console us. That whereas people in the past lived in what was very close to a wasteland and much Christian devotion talks about how terrible it is, nevertheless, there was some sense of the glory of God was possible. Now we have a very strong sense of the brokenness of the human image, of nullity, of sheer nothingness. It's intimated in the Renaissance, but it's now realised. The nullity of Samuel Beckett's world, that is something which I don't think can be sustained. It seems to me unsustainable, and it's proclaiming that it's unsustainable. But what the answer is beyond that lack of sustainability is, I don't know. On Ideas, you've listened to the second episode of The Myth of the Secular. The series continues tomorrow at this time. It was written and presented by David Cayley, with the help of Bernie Lucht, Dave Field, and Liz Nage. Podcasts of all the programs in this series are available at our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter there and find out what's coming up in the show. If you're in the Toronto area, join me tomorrow night for the finale of this year's Massey Lectures, The Universe Within by Neil Turok. We'll be at Kerner Hall, 273 Bloor Street West. The show starts at 8 o'clock. For ticket details, go to cbc.ca slash Masseys. The executive producer of Ideas is Pam Bertrand. I'm Paul Kennedy. The news is next. <laughs>